women's rights in the world. Welcome to episode six in a series of podcasts of the women's IP world. We are celebrating and shining the spotlight on women working in intellectual property law and innovation. I'm your host, Michelle Katz, and I'm the co-founding partner of the law firm Advitum IP, which in Latin means intellectual property for life. And we are based out of the U.S. in Chicago. Me and my firm are hosting this podcast on behalf of Northens Media PR and Marketing Limited based in London. They are the publishers of the Women's IP World Annual and the Global IP Matrix Magazine. In today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking with Keisha Fleming-Lake, the managing partner of the law firm Caribbean Trademark Services, LLC, with offices in Anguilla, as well as in the state of Florida. Later on, we will be discussing her article in the most recent Women's IP World Annual Magazine entitled Trademark Practice in the Caribbean Jurisdiction, which is now available to read and in audio format at www.womensipworld.com. Again, that's www.womensipworld.com. So Keisha, welcome. Such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I understand that you were born and raised in the Caribbean. Can you explain the Caribbean region and where Anguilla fits into it? Okay, yes. So I was actually born in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and mm. I was raised in Anguilla, which is a British uh, overseas territory. So the Caribbean consists of a number of islands that are either historically colonial-based or still currently under colonial jurisdiction, either British, French, Dutch, Spanish, or the United States. And I was born in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is still one of the U.S. territories, and grew up in Anguilla, which is currently still a British uh, dependent territory. So it's a landscape of multiple islands. Each island is independent in its jurisdiction, in the different laws, and the different practices. Culturally, there are some overlaps but they are divided and some people assume there's one blanket approach for all the islands, but no, it's a lot of different little islands. Some are British, like I said, some are French, some are Dutch, some are Spanish, and some are U.S. territories. And some are independent, is that correct? Yes, some of them are independent. So they have um, filed their independence from their colonial heritage history but they still base their laws and their systems from, from that colonial background. So, for example, you have Antigua, that is a, was a British dependent territory, but it's now independent. But the basis of their common law and the basis of their culture is from that British dependence. And because of the colonial history in the region, you can see the culture from the country that that colonized the island. Is that correct? Yes. So, for example, the um, side of the street you drive on, for example. So you grew up in a U.S. Virgin Island, and then 
but you were raised in um, a British one. Yes. So that also affects just kind of your day-to-day life, right? I mean, just, just normal things that we take for granted, like driving. Yes. So one of the things that affect um, the way that the islands develop culturally and practice-wise is its proximity to the United States and also um, its colonial heritage. So, for example, in Anguilla, we're British, so we drive on the British on the left side of the road, but all of our vehicles, because it's closer to the U.S. than it is to the U.K. and to um, Europe, we have American spec vehicles. So the, the steering wheel is on the side that your American car is, but we're driving on the opposite side of the road. Now, over years, trade has improved, so we do have a lot more cars that come from the UK and, and, and not necessarily only the US, so you're seeing more of a variety. But growing up, it was always 100% American cars, and we still followed the British system of driving. Does that ever cause conflicts with tourists coming to visit? Oh, yes. They, you know, it does create some issues. We've, you know, there are a number of accidents, some very fatal, some minor because tourists don't remember and not necessarily only tourists, but you know, when, when, when there are no um, universities in Anguilla, for example. And so when you graduate from high school, you go off to college and you're here and you're driving on the right-hand side of the road in the U S and then you come back to the Caribbean for a vacation or for a couple of months and you forget. So it's not only the tourists that fall into that issue. It just depends on where you've been driving or even if you are away for a short stay. So most times it's there's a sticker that's put on the dashboard. I remember growing up that said, keep left. It was like a constant reminder and there are signs and, you know, but it's, it's not, most people who do decide to drive make a conscious decision to pay attention to the side they're driving on. And it's, you know, it's not a big of an issue now as it was you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah, but those keep left signs are probably saving saving lives and injuries. So it, it seems like good to have good to have around. Are there other examples that you know that you think of where there's uh, differences that affect day to day life? I mean, yes, of course. There's food. There's um, the um, language. You know, the language differences that are based on the colonial heritage, and even if for example, the, the St. Martin is French and Dutch, and the schools teach French and Dutch. They do teach English also, but the main language is French and Dutch. Um, Anguilla is English, but it's British English. So there's a difference with the American version of spelling and pronunciation. So you see that a lot um, with kids that are graduating from the Caribbean and then coming to the U.S. They, you know, they have to adjust to the differences in spelling, um, and then it's just a mannerisms, cultural, uh, the way we, the, the parents raise the children, their, the, the um, religious backgrounds. I mean, there are some islands that have different cultures based on, you know, um, the type, the, the, where the slaves came from back in the plantation days. Trinidad, for example, has a huge population of Indian nationals that make up their overall population and you see the cultural difference in the food in the practices religious practices so it's just a complete melting pot of a lot of different cultures that come that come about as a result of the slavery 
who were the indigenous workers back in the day, the colonial ownership of the different territories, and then there is the overlap because the islands are so close. You have people that travel from one country to the other, take their culture and create another culture. So it's just a, it's just a beautiful, marvelous thing to see when you travel and you interact with that culture. But it's different. So you have to understand it and appreciate it. And you see it reflected even in the way law is being practiced and the way you know, different things come about with administration. So once you grow up there or you have a, fault, a solid understanding of the different cultural practices and backgrounds, then you kind of understand why this is being done this way, why it's being requested for it to be done a certain way. It has nothing to do with anything other than, you know, the way the, the historical background of this specific country. Learning the history of the Caribbean islands would probably help people understand the way law is practiced, especially since, as you said, there's no one uniform way of practicing among this region. Yes, absolutely. Especially, and we see that a lot in the trademark practice, IP practice, because, um, you know, when the countries were still dependent colonially, they depended on the IP practice of the country that was that they were part of um, for registration and for different recordings. And now as they've become independent and passing on trademark legislation, different local laws, you see it's slightly different, but it's based from the same British common law, the French common law practice. In the French areas, are they practicing law in the civil context? Because even in the U.S., we have one state out of the 50 that practices civil law because of French roots. Is that the same for the French part of St. Martin, for example? Um, I'm not sure about French St. Martin because like I said, it's so different to the British. I am completely trained in the British and the U.S. system. So I'm not completely sure about French St. Martin. So it's so, it's so interesting. And we're going to get, uh, we'll do a deeper dive uh, later on on the substantive trademark area. You know, when I think of the Caribbean, I think of the blue waters and beaches and the amazing tropical fruit and the food and the wonderful people I've met from spending time in the Caribbean for a getaway. As someone from the Caribbean, what was it like growing up there? You know, um, growing up there was very interesting because we were under the still and and especially growing up, there was more heavy influence from the British, um, British system. But um, we grew up very close to the water because Anguilla, the island that I grew up on, is is very small. It's one of the smaller jurisdictions. So it was, and tourism was our main industry back then, and still is. And so we saw culturally where we grew up as a service type. Um, people and we were hosting and and being of service to others was so part of our big part of our teaching and our culture. Only now that I'm an adult, I'm figuring out that is because we were a tourism destination and we were always very receptive of other cultures coming in because of what, what we depended on to survive. And growing up so close to the water and growing up so close to fishing, so close to nature because there was very, you know, shipping into the island was very difficult. So you learn to survive from what you had, a lot of natural resources. 
And so even as an adult, you long for that ability to get near the water, get close to nature, and because it takes you back to what you know. Um, so growing up there for me was very interesting. We knew a lot about the United States. Cable came in right around the time I was a teenager. So you were open up to the whole world of, of the United States and some of Europe. And you saw what the rest of the world had to offer. But, you know, your parents and our grandparents were very strict in instilling those um, Caribbean and cultural values that kept us really close to nature and making use of what we had and growing up being of service. That sounds like the perfect timing for a teenager to then get cable and probably the worst time from a parent perspective. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. And so I know that, you know, eventually you went to law school and you're a registered attorney in a few states in the U.S. and in several islands. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, how did that come to pass? Can you give us the background on on, on that? Well, yes. So like I said, Anguilla had, at the time when I was growing up, the highest education was high school. And so pretty much you were being prepared in high school, every single child to then leave the country and go off and pursue higher education. Online study was not even available that much at that time because we didn't have reliable internet. Um, I went to, I finished my high school in England in a boarding school because at the time I wanted to go to law school in England. But back then I was a U.S. citizen, even though I had some British um, British overseas territory and nationality, I couldn't work. It was still the requirement for some visa. And so I said, okay, I have my U.S. citizenship. I'm going to go to the U.S. and pursue my studies. And then I I went to law school in Detroit. I got was hired by a big firm, worked there for a while, and then I took the bar in Florida because Florida was close to the Caribbean. I always wanted to either live and practice in the Caribbean full-time or be where I can practice in both jurisdictions. And then I took the Missouri bar because I was moving there for a short stay. And then in the Caribbean, if you want to practice in the Caribbean, you have to go back to law school. So I did that. And I got what is called a legal education certificate that allows you then to be called to the bar in multiple jurisdictions in the Caribbean. Um, And then there's a little twist because if you have the nationality of a few Caribbean islands, it allows you then to be called to the bar based on a joint agreement between these islands that allow citizens of those islands with a legal education certificate to be able to practice in those jurisdictions. And I just happened to have that citizenship from Anguilla. And that then allowed me to be called to the bar and I can practice in pretty much a whole number of different Caribbean jurisdictions. Wow. So that's a lot of different jurisdictions under your belt. And then at some point you thought, well, maybe I should start practicing. Um, I know you were practicing in the States for, for a bit, but then once you were certified in the Caribbean, then what did you do? Yes, yeah, so I was practicing in the States for about five years before I were a couple of years, about four or five years before I went back to law school in the Caribbean to get that license. Then I came back to the States to Missouri, and then I went to the Caribbean and I started my law practice there. And I I um I worked there under that law practice for about 10 years before joining Caribbean Trademark Services. And that's where I practice now through Caribbean Trademark Services, Florida office and the Anguilla office. So I, I, you know, during the entire time I was practicing, but most of the attorneys in the Caribbean 
are general practitioners. They do some IP, some commercial litigation, some transactional. That's what I did um, because it's the, the business is not vast enough to specialize. But then once I joined Caribbean Trademark Services, I focused and specialized on intellectual property. How many offices are part of the Caribbean group, your Caribbean group? We have two offices, one in, in Palm Beach Gardens and one in Anguilla. Okay, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Got yeah. it. Okay. So then where do you reside most of the year? Um, I, you know, I have a home in both in Palm Beach Gardens and one in Anguilla. I say I commute between both. Uh, last year with COVID, I was stationed mainly in the Palm Beach Gardens office. But I, you know, I go back and forth as much as I can. So both are my, you know, both are my base, base offices. Now there, you have strong internet in Angola. It wasn't like when you were growing up previously. So you can really, you know, as long as you have Wi-Fi, you can work pretty from anywhere. Yeah, well, Angola was hit very hard by Hurricane Alma back in 2017 and devastated the country. Mm-hmm. And after that, they put in fiber optic. The island is small. We got a lot of help from outside Canada and other Caribbean countries. And they put in underground internet, complete fiber optics. So now you have the best internet connection, really reliable and solid. So I can walk from, you know, both offices. I can I'm pretty much you know, use a server and work from anywhere. And hurricanes, that's a, that is a big issue for the Caribbean, for parts of Florida too. Yes. Uh, we hear on the news, we, the tremendous storms that really can wipe out um, a lot of the infrastructure, you know, the buildings and, you know, people need to be safe and it's very difficult on an island probably to do that. Yes, that's true. Um, so the Anguilla, for example, is in Anguilla, Antigua, St. Kitts. They're all on what they call the hurricane belt. So pretty much anything that comes off and starts to head to the Caribbean, those islands are always in the watch zone. Um, you have other islands like Trinidad and Barbados that sometimes can um, are not as threatened by the hurricanes. Jamaica, not so much. So... And, and you see the infrastructure then that's developed in order to deal with the possibility of hurricanes. And although they can be very devastating, you know, over the years, they've adopted to the building code to accommodate these storms that can pass through. For example, most of the houses have concrete roofing, solid cinder block and concrete building for the walls. And so although they are threatened and they get hit, there's not as much um, devastation as it used to be in the early 50s and early 60s. And they bounce back really fast. Not to say that a Hurricane Irma-type storm can come through and take them off you know, off the radar, for, off the grid for a while. But most times it's a month or two and they're back. And it's not every year that they experience the storms. But every year you go through the watches and the warnings and the whole routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much a part of... The, the life to 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 weather to weather these storms quite yeah. literally yes and then you know it's a small island it's a very big boating industry and you know the, the the boaters have to take their boats out of the water the fishermen have to do the same thing so it becomes a routine and, and every year they get better at it and you know the notices and the watch systems that they rely on are more and more reliable so 
It's gotten a lot better over the years, definitely. Well, that's great to hear because you know there, we avoid taking certain trips during hurricane season. I mean, yeah. it has a you know instead of saying you know fall, summer, you know that real the usual seasons. There's the hurricane season. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very it's quite real. Um, so at this point, we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue this discussion in a moment. We have now started the candidate research process for the Women's IP World Annual 2022. The Women's IP World Annual is the industry's number one intellectual property law publication that celebrates the work and achievements of professional women working in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. We are very proud to provide a platform for women working in intellectual property and innovation by shining a spotlight on their expertise and professional knowledge in their respective fields of operation in IP through engaging thought leadership content. Our annual publication has caught the eye of many IP associations from all over the world. More importantly, it has attracted a cocktail of awe-inspiring, knowledgeable women who are happy to share their professional and personal experiences of working in the industry. Our unbiased approach welcomes large to boutique law firms and female industry professionals at all levels to join our network of remarkable women from all over the world. The famous American journalist and women's rights advocate, Miss Sarah Margaret Fuller Osselai, once said, If you have knowledge, let others shine their candles in it, and we couldn't agree more. Contact us today if you would like to nominate a candidate to join the Women's IP World Annual 2022 or if you would like to personally share your knowledge, inspire and be inspired. You can contact us on plus 44 0203 813 0457 or email us at info at For more information and to check out the latest issue of the Women's IP World Annual, please go to www.womensipworld.com. The Women's IP World Annual, the industry's leading publication that celebrates the work and achievements of women working in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. The Women's IP World Annual 2022 is sponsored by patent seekers in the United Kingdom and Lexorbis in India. Okay, we're back. And uh, Keisha, let's jump into your recent article. I found it so interesting. And some of the points we've touched on a little bit but let's talk more about uh, the trademark system. I understand from what you've said that there are different, each island has its own system uh, and they could be quite different from island to island. Have you seen from your experience that there are significant differences? Yes, absolutely. And the reason for the differences what we touched on earlier, it's probably because of the colonial heritage. And also it depends on what the government themselves invest into the trademark practice, the, the, the trademark office, because like most islands are tourism based and that's where most of the funding goes. So it just depends on how sophisticated the office itself is from a practice point of view, how different it can be and then from a legislative point of view, each island has their own law, their own um, trademark act that governs the, the legal aspect of it. And that's where you also see some differences. And ha- have some of the, the islands grouped together to form a unified system? 
No, the islands do not group together, but there are some territories that are double. So you have, for example, St. Kitts and Nevis, two independent islands, but they form one country. Um, you have Antigua and Barbuda, two independent islands, but that's one country. There's no system through the Caribbean that allows more than one jurisdiction to connect and form a unified system between those two countries. So when you're looking at St. Martin, which I'm always fascinates me, you know, part of it is French, part of it is Dutch. Mm-hmm. What is their trademark system there? So St. Martin is French and Dutch. So they have two distinctly different trademark systems. And each one is based off of the the um, colonial heritage. So St. Martin has the French system, the Dutch French side has the French system and a Dutch side has the Dutch system. Um, it's one country, one island, but it's two countries. So the French side, if you want to, so if you want to file a trademark for protection in St. Martin, for example, mm-hmm. you need to file two applications, one in the French side and the other in the Dutch side? Well, it depends on if you, if you want protection in both then you will have to do that. Yes. Interesting. Okay, so do they have two separate offices then? So, yes, they do. They have one they have one office for one side that's on the island and there's another office for the other side that's in the European European territory. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it it's something else to navigate this area. I <laughs> it, it's a good thing that you have uh, your certificate in so many different islands here and i'm sure even the ones you 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 are not appearing in court you still have the knowledge of uh of these other areas it could be quite complicated for those that are trying to enforce or at least set up protection in the caribbean yeah and st martin is one of those islands that's very interesting because it's very difficult for a lot of people to visualize how a small island can have such distinct difference in the French and the Dutch. And then you still have this overarching British um, presence, kind of. So Anguilla is 11 miles from St. Martin. So I grew up going back and forth from St. Martin to Anguilla. So I understand geographically how it works. Um, And, you know, the French port has its own, the French side has its own port and the Dutch side has its own port. So it's even, you know, it's even more difficult to visualize it because it's so close together in terms of distance, but it's so different in the terms of how it operates. They have their own laws, own government, own police systems, different languages, different cultures. It's like two different worlds on one small island. It blows my mind, actually, having to having to figure this out. But that's why we have experts like you, right, Keisha? So, yeah. so we're, we'd be in good hands. So if you, let's take a maybe a less complicated example, if um, Angola is um, a UK, um, a British island, is that, that's correct? Yes, Anguilla. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then if you were filing um, an application to protect a trademark there, you would file directly in that office. Yes. As opposed to the UK. Yes, so Anguilla is still a British dependent territory and you file directly to the trademark office there, 
but they also accept UK filings that can be re-registered in Angola. So you either file a total new independent application there, or you can take a UK registration and file it in the Angola Trademark Office for re-registration. Okay, interesting. So how do how do the the differences from island to island um, how how does that affect Madrid Protocol filings? So Madrid protocols, there are only some a few islands that are actually signed on to the Madrid Protocol. Um, Antigua's one, so that was for a long time. Antigua was the only British English speaking Caribbean island that was signed on, and then very recently Trinidad signed on. Um, and then I believe Jamaica's not signed on, but there is some discussion between Jamaica and Barbados. So if the island is signed on to the Madrid Protocol, then when you file, you can designate that country as one of the countries for protection. If it's not signed on, then you can't. Are you seeing much volume in Madrid Protocol filings? Um, you know, not as much as we anticipated. In Antigua, for example... There's there's quite a few, but we want we were trying at one point to encourage some local applications through the Antigua office for Madrid filings. The, the uptick and the, the the quantity that we were anticipating did not come through. I don't know what's the real reason for that. Maybe because not enough Caribbean jurisdictions are signed on. Um, that may be one reason. And the other reason is that even when you file some of these, because the Caribbean is so different and the requirements are so different, the issue of um, facing office actions and objections come up a lot. And it's, it's probably easier to just file directly in that country, tailor your application to that specific jurisdiction and avoid the objections. But for right now, it's not as much as was anticipated. Hopefully we'll see a growth. But again, there are only two English-speaking Caribbean countries and then Cuba's also signed on, but not enough of the small islands. Yeah, so maybe there'll be an increase when there when there are uh, certainly more more islands that that have signed on. Yeah. As far as um, I I saw in your article that some of the islands have manual registries and others are electronic. Yes. Um, I would I would imagine um, the effect of COVID. And those with manual <laughs> registries were greatly affected. Uh, what what has been the effect of COVID on filings in the Caribbean? Yes. So the out of COVID, we saw a couple of islands that went electronic during the whole COVID. The the first part of the COVID lockdown, Trinidad, for example, went completely electronic. And then we also noticed that some of the manual jurisdictions allowed for email filings, although they did not have the complete electronic system and database. Now, in the recent months, I've seen a reversal where we see the manual jurisdictions are still kind of being still very heavy manually dependent on manual filings, which is unfortunate because you have processing delays. No, the Caribbean is now being hit by COVID and you're seeing a lot of the jurisdictions that are going through lockdowns and closures. And when they close, it's not a a situation where the registries are working offline or offsite. It means that it's closed and nothing that's happening. So definitely some delays, definitely some backlogs. 
it's still very frustrating for some of the for some of the manual jurisdictions that require notaries, originals, um, certifications, and some documents. And some of these other countries can't get it done because they're working from home. There are no notaries available. And so you see the filings being impacted in that way. Although there is some impact, though, the registrars and the registry staff, you know, they're working with us and they're being flexible and allowing copies to be filed with originals being sent later. They're allowing some flexibility, but the laws are written in such a way that they they cannot waive the requirements unless they modify the legislature. So you're being stuck with still doing it the manual way and still submitting the documents that they require for manual filing. And changing legislation, wow, that takes some time. And their offices are probably closed too. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not a priority. The the bottom line is not a priority for some of those jurisdictions right now because they're battling, you know, trying to, um, the only industry is tourism for some of them. And with COVID lockdowns and with dealing with trying to manage the spread of COVID, they're putting laws in place to address that as opposed to, you know, you know, trademark filings. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Health, health and health and welfare come first. Uh, I, I really encourage uh, the listeners to, to read your article. It is so much interesting information about the Caribbean and the law that's practiced there. I, a little um, nugget that I pulled out was that there are no service marks in some of the islands. So that's very interesting and would certainly affect many businesses out there. So I highly encourage people to read read the article that it starts on page 16 of the Women's IP World Annual 2021. It's 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 excellent and um, clarifies so much of the very confusing lot from an outsider of of the of trademark law that's being practiced with covering so many different islands. Keisha, thank you for participating in today's podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show and to our listeners, please like follow, share with your friends, but also feel free to send comments. We would love to hear from you and get your feedback. So thank you very much and uh, take good care. Thank you. Women's 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 You have been listening to the Women's IP World Annual Podcast, hosted by Michelle Katz from Advitum IP in Chicago, on behalf of Northern's Media PR and Marketing Limited.